0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.
1: My name is Graham Stewart. I'm the chairman of the uh, uh, Education Select Committee. It's a great pleasure to be with you here today and I'd like to thank Cambridge Assessment um, for organising and putting on uh, these events where we hear directly from academics, and then there's the opportunity for politicians such as myself and uh, experts uh, in the room to discuss the policy implications that may result from what we've talked about. Uh, there's always, it's always a, a, a wrestle. I sometimes seem frustrated with academics uh, because of trying to derive they, what we ought to do from the uh, facts or, uh, 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 that they found in their research. And um, Bennett, I think, has just come up with a genius idea um, for future meetings, which is where we'll get some of the, um, some of the uh, people from the think tank, some of the wonks whose job is to take, uh, examine the research and help turn that into practical policy. And I think that could be an interesting step at a future meeting as well. So we can have academics, response from the think tank, um, people from different perspectives, and a, uh, a dialogue with politicians um, whose ultimate responsibility is to um, make decisions and implement uh, policy. Uh, Today we are um, uh, having discussions around, I think it would be fair to say, um, the McKinsey and Company report, How the World's Most Improved School Systems Keep Getting Better, Uh, uh, and I'm fascinated to uh, follow the discussion um, today. It's uh, quite a big report with a lot in it, the, the, the key point I took out of it, I remember, uh, was that it's about doing the correct intervention at the right time, which might sound blindingly obvious, but it's quite easy for politicians to go somewhere, see something good, and see an intervention that really works really well in a system, if there is such a thing as an educational system, at a certain state, and come back and go, we must do that too. Whereas I think the report made it very clear that you have to look at where you are on the sort of development curve and work out whether any particular intervention is appropriate for where you are at that particular time. Autonomy is not always a good in education. It may sometimes need tightening up. Um, Target setting and central intervention may actually be appropriate in some cases, and it's about looking at the state of um, the system, so far as there is one at any time. Anyway, that's what I took out, but we're going to hear far more learned... uh, Insights. Now, I'm uh, delighted to say that we have with us today uh, Michael Clark from McKinsey and Company, who, um, I shouldn't say deliberately, but actually deliberately isn't an author of the report from our point of view. The report um, we feel should stand on its own, but Michael has kindly agreed to say a few words of introduction before we take the presentations and will then give an equally uh, brief and pithy. Response to the presentations at the end, and then we'll open out to a uh, discussion with all present, if everybody's happy with that. So with no further ado, Michael, if I can hand over to you.
2: Right, well, uh, thank you for that introduction, and thank you for inviting me here. As um, Graham says, I didn't actually uh, write the report. I, I had the pleasure of doing a couple of the interviews and seeing some early drafts. But I think um, as, I, as I reflected on it and on this uh, debate and discussion, I think what really... Interesting and excited me is that this report, for all its strengths and weaknesses, has generated a huge amount of debate, and as I think is also, I hope, leading to people talking about uh, all the stuff that academics and policy makers have been talking about, but using a shared language of that fair to good, good to great, great to excellent journey. Um, and so I'm really excited uh, to listen and hear from everyone in the room about what you thought about it as I reflected on the path that England has taken and where we are, I think um, the two big lessons for me is absolutely where you are on that journey, but also the context. So I think understanding what has come before and some of the success in, and policy uh, failures uh, that we've seen in the last 10, 15 years. And then the last one, uh, I, I'll turn back to everyone in this room, is, is that leadership continuity and a guiding coalition, as we talk about in the report, is incredibly important. And I think everyone in this room has their their part to play in that coalition and and in the leadership of the system. So I hope uh, to listen and hear about ideas on how we can take what's in the report but also contextualise it and become leaders of a change that gets us further up that curve. So I'm looking forward to hearing from all of you.
1: Excellent, and Michael Gove would be delighted to hear that we all have a stake in keeping him in his job, I'm sure. Uh, uh, If I can now move to Professor David Raff and ask him to make a presentation to us. Well, thank you very much. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me to
3: this event. You have chosen the day when London seems to have turned off the summer for a bit. I'm also missing what might turn out to be the one day of summer that we're getting in Edinburgh uh, this year. So, So with that slight misgiving, I'm very pleased to be here. It's an important topic. It also allows me to complete what I might call a certain amount of unfinished business with respect to House of Commons committees because, although this isn't obviously a committee um, session, the, the one time when I was giving evidence to the committee of which we're now chair, uh, Graham, was about, I think, 2004, when I was a member of the Tomlinson Working Group. And I was invited down to talk not so much about the group, Working Group's uh, thoughts and procedures, but rather about the international experience on 14-19... to 19 Education, which somebody or other thought I, I knew something about. And it was a, quite a grueling session, as you can probably imagine. At the end of it, having been round the table and everybody asking me these questions, I did really want to know, please, have I passed? But at, at the end of it, um, Barry Shearman, who the, the then chair, asked what I imagine is a fairly standard question, which is, is there anything else you would like to tell us? And of course, there was. And of course, I only thought about it two minutes after the meeting broke up, and everybody um, went went off to the, the, the next the next division. And what I really wanted to say, and um, this is where, sorry, click to exit. So this is where I need to find out. How do I get? How do I get onto the? Uh, sorry, I, I couldn't. I couldn't find the. Right. Yes. What I wanted to say was don't confuse policy learning with policy borrowing. It occurred to me at the end of that session that the reason why I came away feeling slightly dissatisfied was that all the questions one way or another had been asking me about international experience with a view to what is the best practice that we can import from the best countries and bring back here and adapt. And what I would have liked people to have asked was questions which had more to do with my second concept, of policy learning which is a somewhat more diffuse um, idea using foreign experience not just to extract the single model of best practice but in a variety of ways to improve understanding and to support policy development at home to ask if you like the why questions and the how questions and not just the what questions and in my brief presentation I'm going to be somewhat critical of the McKinsey report because I'm going to suggest that actually it's a version of policy borrowing and as as a result, Sapper's weaknesses. And I'm going to suggest, at least just give you some inklings of what I think a policy learning approach, not so much what conclusions it would reach, but how it would start us on the process of thinking. Now, McKinsey, I'd like to suggest, is actually a sophisticated version of policy borrowing. It's looking at examples of effective, improving school systems. It's sophisticated in three very positive ways, which I, all of which I condemn. First, it is not or commend. First of which is not just about looking for existing good practice; it's very much about change, about improvement, and that's a big improvement on a lot of the existing research, which is cross-sectional and static. Secondly, it relates that best practice to the starting point. In other words, it doesn't assume that all systems are starting from the same position on this improvement journey. It relates what you need to do to where you currently are, as, as, as Graham said at the beginning. And third, it does say that having decided on what the best practice is, you need to contextualise it. Now, all those three things are exa- a, a good points, which, which I would entirely agree with. But it's still a policy-borrowing or a best-practice approach. The assumption is that there is just one improvement journey. What do they do? The McKinsey approach, it starts off by identifying improving systems. I'm not going to go through this, incidentally, in detail in terms of the conclusions of the the report. Um, Although... Well, I'll come, come to a second. It starts off by identifying a number of improving systems around the world who are at different stages of that improvement journey, as it were, starting with different levels of educational development, educational performance. It then asks the system leaders... About their interventions, the policies that they have pursued, which are assumed to be the, the source of that improvement. It abstracts the common features from those interventions, and then it defines intervention clusters for each stage and also another set of intervention clusters across all stages. That's a mistake, though, that should be page 36. If you've got the report, if you want to see the summary of a lot of what it says, look at Exhibit 8 on page 36. And that actually summarises the McKinsey Report's conclusions about the nature of the interventions that are going to get you through each stage of the improvement journey, respectively from poor to fair, from fair to good, and good to great, and great to excellent. You'll see that England, I think, is still in the good good to great journey. It hasn't yet had greatness thrust upon it, um, and it's to do with shaping the professional, so raising the calibre of entering teachers and principals raising the calibre of existing teachers and principals and school-based decision-making. Those are the three things that England, well, has been doing because it's been moving along that improvement journey but possibly needs a little bit more of before it gets to the fourth um, stage of that improvement journey which is called Improving Through Peers and Innovation. Now, this approach begs three questions. First, has McKinsey accurately identified the improving systems? Well, I think it probably has identified certainly some systems which have improved quite significantly, whether they're the only ones, but I don't think it claims that they are. So, so far, so good. But there are, of course, other criteria of improvement. We must always bear in mind that this is very much focused with attainment in a fairly traditional sense. It's not looking, for example, at issues to do with equity. It's not looking, for example, at issues to do with the extent to which school systems foster creativity or entrepreneurship. It's not looking at, at a range of other possible outcomes. And of course there are always issues to do with how you compare these things across countries and over time. And it's always worth remembering Goodhart's law, which is that any indicator which is used as a policy target therefore thereby loses its value as an indicator, because people are, are aiming at the indicator, not at what it's meant to indicate. And so all, a lot of the evidence in the report is at least potentially subject to that problem. But that's a familiar problem which as researchers and indeed as policymakers, um, we're always facing. Nevertheless, I would agree that at least there are systems that are, that, that are improving. The next question is, are these systems actually making the interventions described in the report? And this is not as obvious as the report suggests, because the information in the report about those interventions are all obtained within the policy bubble. They're asking the policymakers who who designed the interventions, or sometimes the people who have actually put them into practice and therefore own them and are responsible for them, what have you done? Has it worked? They haven't asked the people who might have rather different perspectives from down below. And when you're asking questions about things like, have you decentralised power? Have you sustained professionalism? It's rather important to ask the people who are supposed to be at the receiving end of those changes and not just the people from up top. Similarly, if you're asking questions, which is another point that they make about the importance of being consistent across your different policies, well, yes, the policy makers will tell you they're consistent. And third, is the improvement actually due to the interventions described in McKinsey? This, I think, is the crucial one. The first point is that the methodology probably downplays the variation in the interventions of the different improving countries. It exaggerates the common features, underplays ways they're different. That's not the important point, though. The important point is they make the wrong comparison. They compare improvers at different stages of the improvement journey. They don't compare the improvers with other countries who started from the same position and did not improve. If you actually read some of the text, you'll find that the choice of interventions by countries wasn't a matter of having read the literature and here's decided here's what we need at this stage of our journey. It was fairly obvious, given the circumstances those countries were in, what they, what they needed to do. I looked through, I live, I live and work in Scotland. Scotland is not an improving country, according to McKinsey, and probably accurately uh, so identified, at least in these relative terms. If you'd asked Scottish policymakers what interventions they had made, they would have given you exactly the same answers as the improving countries in that particular cluster. So I'm not sure that the improving country, as described by McKinsey, would have been any different from the non-improving countries had they been included in the study. And finally, processes and contexts are treated as secondary. So I don't actually think that that report... Is a particularly reliable guide to choosing policy interventions, and as such, it's a flawed example, even of that, even of a policy borrowing approach. But even a better-designed best practice study, which had, for example, compared with the non-improving countries, I think would have been inconclusive. For For the reasons I've just described, you would have got the same answers from the different from the different countries. And I want to suggest very briefly what you might another way of going about making those international comparisons, which I shall call a policy learning approach. And the McKinsey Report provides lots and lots of useful material for it if you read the detail and try to use it as a starting point for learning rather than as, as it were, the source of conclusions you're meant to reach. Um, Well, the policy learning approach is actually about using cross-national comparisons to understand your own system better, more in a moment, to explore the range of policy options, to broaden your horizons, other things we might think about doing. Good practice, but don't think just in terms of best practice, that implies there's only one way. To understand about the processes and dynamics of change, the issues that arise if you, if you pursue particular lines of approach, but not just to identify the policy and, and take it off the peg, even if you are subsequently going to, you know, to tailor it, to, to contextualise it, to fit your own um, circumstances. And then I'll conclude by saying one or two things you might want to think about. Learn from your own history. Looking at Richard here, one of the main conclusions from the 14 to 19 review which the, uh, the, the National Foundation uh, carried out was the importance of learning from what's already been done. It probably has been tried before. Never, uh, There was a tendency within that policy bubble to exaggerate the difference between current policies and current situations and what's happened in the past. Look for national path dependence rather than the shared improvement journey with other countries. Second, and crucially identify your national strengths. There's something you can do through comparisons and build on them. Don't design your policy from a deficit mode of thinking. Um, the example i put there is the tradition of local innovation. One of the strengths of the English system not least seen from north of the border is it does have a strength of local, a tradition of local school based innovation. Some would say it's been somewhat eroded over the, over the years, but it, but it is there and I think it is still vibrant. And indeed, the 14 to 19 review discovered plenty of examples of it. The issue may therefore be how that innovation does or doesn't get systematized. And I w- don't think I can take you through this one. I think you've got the, 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 the printed um, version of, in the pack. this is something I wrote nine years ago. It was actually one of the things that led up to the the 14 to 19 review. And this is my attempt to summarise at least some of those strengths of the English system. And Frank Coffield added two or three sort of riders as a a postscript in a a later um, piece. Um, I'm not saying this is definitive. It's nine years old. It's talking mainly about 14 to 19 education, about transitions into employment. But I would invite everybody present to reflect on what do you think of the existing strengths of the English system, and, what, and to what extent and how can we use those to build on it in order to improve it. Facilitate horizontal learning. Think about how a school system allows that learning to spread horizontally. And Here I would agree very much with what McKinsey says when I talk about this intermediate layer between government and, and, and schools and teachers, whereby you allow that, some of that knowledge, some of that experience to get moved across whether it's done through professional associations, subject organisations, local authorities, or other sorts of organisations, is possibly a matter that depends on local circumstances. But there's a lot of value in having structures and systems that allow this knowledge to be spread horizontally. But equally, and this is at least somewhat not entirely represented adequately by McKinsey, facilitate vertical learning as well and, above all, learn from the research. There's been lots of research on implementation in all sorts of policy areas, um, which basically says that you need to have a combination of bottom-up and top-down, and that you need to allow the messages and the communications to move in both directions. And what has sometimes, hap- or very often happens, especially when you have a very political, politically contentious area, is that the upward messages get filtered, and you don't get that learning going up from the below to up above, And I must admit, reading the McKinsey report, you do get the sense that this is actually the view of the people on top. They're telling the others. They're trying to communicate their message to people down below. There's not much emphasis on how you get that message. The, the, the converse message is coming up from below. And one of the, these jargon terms, allow for double-loop as well as single-loop learning. Double-loop learning is the learning that makes you question some of the assumptions on which you've been basing your actions, not just on how to improve them. Um, again, very diverse and fragmented systems, I would conjecture, probably don't learn so well. Again, this has implications for how we structure school systems. So all of this has direct implications for school systems because there's too much diversity in the system for that horizontal learning to take place. Another issue from the message that comes across from the research, this, again, is, in a sense, a bit of generalising from the research, teachers, classrooms and pedagogies matter more than schools. Most of the reviews will tell you that. So why do so many of our improvement strategies focus on schools? And finally, professionalism, devolution, devolution of power—I mean—to to, to schools and to, to classrooms and teachers—if you can—they're important, but they're not unproblematic. They're hard to mandate. You can't just pass power down. It's not something quite so so so, so tangible as that. It needs trust. It needs experience. It needs cultural change. It needs time. It can be undermined, and I think as researchers we've seen this happen so many times by mixed policy messages or changing policy messages. You need to be consistent about this. And don't assume, and the point I was making before, that you have achieved the devolution of power, that you have actually built up professionalism just because the policy says you have done so. And a final parting thought, don't exaggerate the potential impact of policy interventions. Be humble. There are lots of other things that are shaping the education system. Governments can do only so much. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, David. That has given us lots of food for thought, and we will be able to return to it in our discussion um, a little later. Um, I now turn to uh, Marianne Sainsbury, um, who will give us some insights from her work in comparing uh, the curriculum in England to that of other high-performing nations, and uh, doubtless making links with the McKinsey Report as appropriate.
0: Over to you. Well, the research that I've been asked to talk about is not directly related to the McKinsey Report, but it is kind of along the same lines in some ways. It was, as it says, a comparison of the core primary curriculum in England to those of other high-performing countries. It was see the top bit, The um, carried out for the then DCSF in 2008, at the time when the primary curriculum was under review, and the question we were looking at was whether there were things that could be learnt or borrowed, to borrow your terminology, from uh, the primary curricula in high-performing countries. And by high-performing countries, uh, we looked at just the two studies, TIMS 2003 and PEARL's 2006 TIMSS is the Trends in International Maths and Science Survey, so both Mathematics and Science. PEARLS 2006, that's International Reading Literacy Study. Uh, 2003 and 2006 were the latest years for which results were available on those two studies. And they all studied fourth grade internationally, which translates into ten-year-olds or year five in this country. We were looking just at the primary curriculum. And we looked at the content of the curriculum itself. We were not, unlike McKinsey, looking at the whole school system. And another difference is that we just identified the countries by high achievement at one point in time and not by progress or improvement as McKinsey has done. So these are the links that that I found when I started to think about how this related to the McKinsey report. Uh, revising curriculum and standards is one of the six interventions common to all the journeys identified there. But, as I've said, the McKinsey focuses on change, seen as a process, rather than what's happening at one point in time. And it constitutes 15% of process interventions, according to the report. But our study had a focus on curriculum content. Here are the countries that were selected for comparison... And they were selected partly because we wanted high-achieving countries but also partly because we were trying to look at countries which were achieving well in all three of the subjects. Some of the countries don't actually participate in one or the other studies and it wasn't always possible to find comparable results. So these these countries that we used for the comparison were the, the best set that emerged. So the ones in bold are the ones that also feature in the McKinsey report. Singapore, you can see, was first in science, first in maths, and fourth only in literacy, probably because all the children were tested in English, which, although it's the language of instruction, is not the language of their homes for the most part. So very high-achieving country, Singapore. Chinese Taipei, pretty good, but lower in literacy, again, probably because of language differences. Hong Kong the Netherlands, Latvia, Ontario, British Columbia, Italy and Sweden. It's quite misleading actually to compare the rankings that way because there are different numbers of countries in the different studies and there are things like do you include the Canadian provinces as a country and so on. So that's just a very brief indication. England at the same time came fifth in science, tenth in maths and nineteenth in literacy reading but again I must caution against translating that literally because there were differences in the way the, uh, the countries were listed so those were the countries used for the comparison and our research question was how does the England curriculum for key stage 2, so 7 to 11 year olds in the core subjects mathematics, arts and literacy compare with those of other high performing countries, we looked at curriculum structure, breadth, relative difficulty, um, how the difficulty of what's taught is matched to the ability of the pupils, and things like time allocated to a subject, order of teaching topics, and how the curriculum is implemented. Here are the key findings for mathematics. Uh, You'll know that the mathematics curriculum in this country is divided into process, kind of problem solving, and content. And that process emphasis on process maths is shared by most of the comparator countries. England's curriculum for number, now that's the numerical aspects of mathematics, was judged to be narrower and less demanding than the majority of the other curricula. But by contrast in data handling, another aspect of mathematics, the curriculum in England is broader and more demanding. And in geometry, we have an emphasis on visualisation and transformational uh, geometry which is not shared by the other countries. So, swings and roundabouts there, no clear picture, but definitely that emphasis on number was striking across the board. This is science, and here too we have an element which is scientific inquiry, which was shared by the other curricula, but not all have it as a structural element. Physical processes in England was narrow and less demanding than most of the others. Life processes and living things, narrower, not always is less demanding. Scientific inquiry and materials and their properties, those are the other curriculum divisions, the demand was very similar. And this is literacy. Um, Much more difficult to compare literacy curricula. They don't even start from the same point. They don't even divide it up into speaking, listening, reading and writing the way we do in all of the other countries. Um, And they were much more likely to include an elaboration of their underlying philosophy and rationale than we are. Whether that was... In some places it was to do very much with induction into the cultural heritage. In other places it was to do with children... um, ...meeting their potential in um, personal and social and uh, development and emotional development. One noticeable feature was that in this country we re- require our primary school children to be quite analytic in looking at the books they read. So it's not just tell me about this character, it's what techniques does the author use to build this character... And that wasn't found in any of the others. It is more demanding. There's a question in my own mind as a primary literacy person whether it's actually appropriate to have that analytic emphasis in the primary years. All the others really just focused on having a thorough comprehension of what children had read and left the analytic stuff until they were older. No other overall patterns because they were just described so differently. In Sweden, for example, there's a... um, the ethos requires that you don't subdivide the language modes at all. Uh, It's it's a point uh, that's very important to them that that language modes are indistinguishable from one another. So really very difficult to make the comparisons in literacy. So this one is about differentiation and how a widespread of ability was accommodated in primary schools in the different countries. And we found that only Singapore had a streaming system to divide up the children according to ability. All of the other systems regarded it as the responsibility of the primary teacher to teach at whatever levels the children were learning at. This one is the time spent on the subject. Maths was about three hours a week. Literacy usually more than maths and science usually less than maths. And then just a quick indication of how we did the study we made the comparison twice once with colleagues at NFER and once by a native of the comparator country and then we compared them and they were done systematically on Excel spreadsheets structured according to the program of study for England we made judgments of breadth of difficulty and then the confidence with which those judgments were made So a typical piece of analysis would look a bit like this. So we've got one tiny element of the English National Curriculum Programme of Study to recognise differences between solids, liquids and gases in terms of ease of flow and maintenance of shape and volume. And then the comparison country, nearest equivalent. Is it easier, harder or similar in difficulty? How confident are we about the difficulty comparison? Broader or narrower and how confident are we about that. So that's just an indication of the methodology that we used. What can we conclude from this in terms of learning, borrowing or anything else? It certainly seemed that the primary curricula of high-performing countries featured a broad and demanding curriculum for number within maths and broad and demanding curriculum for physical processes and life processes within science and an emphasis on reading comprehension rather than textual analysis within reading. But I'm sure I don't need to point out at an assessment seminar that there is a a possibility of circularity here because it does depend what the international studies measure in their surveys, and there is a very strong emphasis on the number elements of maths in the TIMS. So it could be that actually the... um, the high performance is related to the fact that the curriculum matches the, what's tested in the studies. However, in other respects, and really the great majority of respects, the other curricula were very similar to that in England. Sometimes England was even more demanding. Conclusions, bringing it back to McKinsey, you can see that we asked a different question. In a way, the detailed analysis was reassuring for England because it revealed differences of detail, but overall it was pretty similar. It may be that the content of the curriculum is less important than the process. It may be that both have their part to play. I think we have got some complexities here. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Marion. Um, and we now move on to Professor Lorraine Dearden, um, who will give her views on the report in the context of her work on the evaluation of different education programmes. So over to you, Lorraine.
4: OK, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to be relatively brief, but um, and I'm going to borrow research that I've uh, jointly done with some people in the room, like Cathy Silver, but... Um, I, I, I'm just going to offer three thoughts when we're thinking about how, you know, on, on improving school effectiveness. And I think the first thing I, I want to start with is what, what what is our end objective? What are we trying to achieve? Um, and I think that's just always too important to think about in the context. And I think, you know, from the government's point of view, what it wants to do is improve the skills base of, 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 of People in the United Kingdom, and probably to reduce the inequality in, of outcomes in education. I've got people shaking their heads. Okay, but but I, 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 whatever. When we're thinking about what is the correct policy, that we should be, we need to think about what are the outcomes that we're interested in. So I mean, I, it, it it seems to me that schools have a crucial role to play in this, but they're part, one part of a complicated process of skills formation across the, the life cycle. So my, I, I've just got three thoughts um, in terms of this debate which is related to three different pieces of research that I'm imbo- involved with. When we're thinking about me- school effectiveness in this country and ways of improving school effectiveness, we need to measure school effectiveness better. So, so you know, it seems to me that we need to come up with some simple, understandable school effectiveness measure which you know, there's been long attempts in this country to do, that actually measures the progress that the school is making rather than things like the social background of parents that are sending their kids to the school or the prior ability of students <coughs> going into secondary schools or into primary schools. I don't think we've got there yet. I think we need to have some sort of measure that ensures schools add value to all students at their school regardless of their background. And I think we need to have measures that encourages schools to offer a curriculum which see- suits the needs of all the students in their school, and not which is not not something which is based on trying to make the school look good in terms of league tables. And um, I think there is, you know, there is emerging evidence that the cur- current 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 ways of measuring school effectiveness in this country, and I mean there's been lots of debate on that, don't do this, and don't pro- provide schools with the, the right incentives. So um, I just, I'm, I'm going to make you look at some data now, um, um, but I just want to point out that, you know, if we're looking at, say, improving uh, secondary school the value added by schools in this country, you've got to realise that the intake of students when they first enter secondary school is really, really different. Now, if you... I I mean, what this is based on is how kids perform in their Key Stage 2 tests. So 2-2 means that at least one child... uh, that, 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 ..that the child is at least four years behind in either maths or English when they enter secondary school. Okay, and you can see that almost 7% of kids entering secondary school in England are at least four years behind in either maths or English, according to the Key Stage 2 curriculum. Now, 3 3 means that they're around two years behind in either English or maths. And then 4 4 is the expected level. So you can, and, and 5 5 is two years above in both English and maths. So, so these are sort of the crude Key Stage 2 groups. Um, that based on results at year 11. This is based on children completing, uh, in state, uh, doing Key Stage 4 in 2006 and 2007. So what I just want to point out that there's huge heterogeneity in the kids entering schools and schools differ systematically in their intake. Now, if you just, I've just got a summary measure of how these kids do at Key Stage 4 and it, it's a, the Cat Points score which is based on their eight best subjects but also adds on English and maths at the end. And so, so the maximum marks you could get under this score is about 580. And you can see that amongst these groups, there is, hu- you know, there is huge um, variation. You know, a, a school which has a large proportion of kids way behind, it would be impossible for them to, to get the, um, the expected level that, say... Um, Michael Gove is suggesting now, saying that, you know, any school that doesn't get to the average where we are now is a failing school. You can see that some schools basically have all their distribution taken from the bottom, and for them to achieve that would just be impossible, even if they were doing well above par in terms of their intake. So I think what you need to um, do is take account of this when you're setting these targets. Now, in a paper I've done with colleagues at the IOE, we show that depending on what... Another point I want to say, that most of the school effectiveness measures that you see in this country are based on a single measure for a school. So you have a... How many many people... What proportion get 5A star to C? Or what is the average cap point score or a contextualised value-added measure? But... In recent work I've done with colleagues of mine at the Institute of Education John McKerright and Anna Vinols we show that depending on what measure of school effectiveness you use between 25 to 40% of schools are differentially effective across the ability distribution so some schools are very very good at adding value at the bottom of the distribution and maybe you know average at the top whereas other schools just concentrate on groups for which they have a majority and just you know, really do poorly for kids who are not typical in their school. And so just having one measure of school effectiveness does not tell you anything about what the school is doing across the whole entire distribution of its intake. So, so I think you know, when the government's thinking about policies and measuring school f- effectiveness having a single measure of school effectiveness can, can often be misleading for a significant proportion of schools and not very informative for parents. If you've got a child who really struggles with literacy but is excellent in maths, the school that might be most effective for that child might be different. Y- you would not be able to get it by looking at the average school performance. So, And, and I think rather than setting a single target for schools, saying that all kids, you know, of schools... You know, will be failing if they do not uh, reach what, what the average 5A star to C is at the moment, you could set targets by prior ability levels to ensure that schools try and improve um, progress right across the ability spectrum. For, 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 for some schools which only take, you know, in middle-class areas which only take kids at the top of the ability distribution, this new target is meaningless. Um, you know, they... would they would really have to do something wrong for them not to meet the target. So, my, my, you know, as an economist, I think the first, you know, one, an important thing is actually to try and think of some simple and transparent measures which actually are incentive compatible. Don't make schools just try and reach targets and try and improve ability right for, for all students. Um, oh, sorry, going the wrong way. I, I, and so, so maybe the government would argue that this is already happening with the contextualised value-added. Um, you know, the contextualised value-added is meant to measure the value added by a school and be a better measure of, of um, how much progress the school is adding. But we've just used survey data where, where we, we actually observe characteristics of the family. And what you see that... Kids with highly educated mothers, on average, get a contextualised valued score which is nearly 30 points higher than kids with poorly measures which are meant to be taking into account family background because it's based on administrative data, don't do a very good job of it. Okay, so, um, so I, you know, I think we really need to th- think again about how we measure school effectiveness and the progress made by schools. Um, I think my second thought is that we have to recognise that socio-economic gaps in educational outcomes arise even before kids start primary school. And this is based on work I've done with Cathy. With and there are large socio-economic gaps in children's outcomes at three and five, even before kids start school. And it's clear that these are driven by family background factors, but also by sort of the nature of the home learning environment and other things like that. So I think if we really want to improve effectiveness of secondary schools, we need to improve the outcomes of children in primary schools. And equally, if we want to improve the outcomes of kids in primary schools, we need to look at policies to reduce the socioeconomic gap in outcomes before kids reach school. So this is based on joint work which uh, was done at Bristol University and the IFS. But basically what we see is that the socioeconomic outcome in educational outcomes widens up until about the age of 14. So, so even before kids start school, there are big socioeconomic gaps. And what this research showed, this was something that we did for the Joseph Roundtree Foundations, is they're large at age three and they continue to w- widen to the age of 14. And schools have some role, some, some impact on that widening gap, but, but not a huge role. And the things that really explain this are uh, 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 you know, uh, prior outcomes, which, of course, are affected by school, but things like the o- early lo- le- home learning environment, expectations and aspirations for education, belief in own actions making a difference, childhood behaviour, material factors. And what this report found at gaps at age 16... Um, that whilst gaps at age 16 is a continuation of the, the earlier gaps that, that had emerged, they could be reduced for the poorest children if, for instance, they have things, access to computer or the internet, avoid problematic or risky behaviour in and outside school, expect to go to HE or have parents who expect them to go, believe that they do well in school. And and, and what was most striking about the work done here was there seemed to be some uh, an aspiration deficit for kids from poor, poorer socio-economic backgrounds. So, you know, whereas some of the current policy is focusing on you know a disadvantaged pupil premium, I think it needs to go broader than that and maybe you know think about policies that um, you know attack uh, that, that that challenge uh, try and sort of. Reju- increase the aspirations of those from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds. So and um, and then my third um, thought I mean I, I you know trying to bring sort of my full range of research here is that improving outcomes at school will, or, you know, or or reducing socioeconomic gaps at age by the age of 16 is, is essential if we're going to reduce socioeconomic gaps in higher education participation and and you know the white paper on higher education funding was released today but but um, and most of the the debate on this has focused on reforms to student support and the impact that it might have on HE participation particularly those from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds but it's clear from an, uh, some other research i've done with colleagues at the IFS and the IOE is that the biggest barrier to kids from poor socioeconomic backgrounds accessing HG, higher education is because <coughs> of the socioeconomic gap in GCSE results that exist at age 16. So, if we really, really want to reduce inequality in access to higher education, we, you know, we need to act a lot further. So, school is part of that, but I think it's much, a part of a much wider agenda to reduce socioeconomic gaps in, in, in skills formation across the life cycle. Okay, that's all I want to say.
1: Thank you very much. Um, before I open out to the floor, I did say I would allow um, Michael to give us a few thoughts um, uh, before we do that. Sure.
2: Thank you, and thank you, speakers. I was, um, I'm going I'm to now do a horrible uh, summary of what I heard, which obviously is, uh, as David would tell me, is a very selective listening uh, on my part, and I probably should be uh, doing some sort of uh, double deep learning on, on what it is. But I, um, I think from, from Lorraine, thank you for keeping us... Uh, very honest about how single measures, or even the composite measures that's used in the report here, actually hide huge variation um, in attainment. I mean, this report uses PISA and TIMS in the same way um, that you do, but one of the damning critiques I think that the OECD uh, has made many times of this country is actually that we, do, we have one of the largest variants uh, in terms of attainment, particularly both our within school but also our, our between school variants. And I think it is very important to note that when we look at sort of absolute measures, composite measures though they be, they actually hide huge amounts of variation and there are different uh, policy levers I think we should be thinking about. Uh, to tackle that and so in, in the debate I look forward to hearing about uh, some of the ways uh, to really think about closing that attainment gap. It's, it's, it's worth noting that Singapore, one of the um, examples, and Lorraine one of the ones that you talked about, do have uh, a very different approach to differentiation um, and indeed uh, have been very successful in the uh, primary ages within the last ten years between getting up some of, uh, for example, their Malay communities – Uh, the results in primary attainment, and I think we should and could look to some of that uh, to think about that attainment. So um, thank you for that, and and I think we should think about it. And Marianne, I think you you stressed uh, the benefits of really actually looking in detail at specific areas, Um, and so the curriculum review that you did was obviously way beyond the scope of things that we could do in here, but shows uh, the depth uh, and, and quality Of work that you can get and I think for me I also heard at the end that in this particular example one of the things the research showed was that actually as well as curriculum which I know the government is currently uh, reviewing there is also the need to look at the processes um, underneath it and and David I'm going to quote you because I loved it so much the McKinsey uh, report is not a reliable guide to choosing policy interventions I could not agree more Um, I think that that's why we're here today Um, And I think that's why, uh, in fact, that we we published the work and undertook the the work. It it is not a reliable guide, but it's meant to generate the sort of discussions that we're having, the sort of uh, detailed work. And you also went on to say that it is a starting point for learning. And so uh, with that starting point um, in mind, I I would just remind us of of sort of... uh, where at least the report uh, left its um, analysis of where England is. So, so um, the learning that we have here is, is, is that England at the moment, I would say, and we had a lot of uh, battles and pushback on this, but is definitely, I feel, in that good to great transition. There are elements of the system that are towards the great end, and let's be clear, there are elements that are towards the fair end, and that's one of the examples of the sort of contextualization and looking into the, the past and really understanding our strengths that David, you spoke of, and Graham, you also spoke of. Um, but if we accept for the moment that we are in that good-to-great transition, there were three areas that the report focused on. It focused on raising the calibre of... Uh, teachers and principals entering the, prof- the profession. So, looking at recruiting, looking at preparation and induction. And I was at the Festival of Education at the weekend talking with uh, the National College, teaching leaders, and future leaders. And I think some of the initiatives that they are spearheading, whether it's the teaching schools, whether it's the growth and expansion of teaching leaders and future leaders, are interesting examples of uh, initiatives to raise the caliber of. Uh, leadership, principals and middle leadership in schools and then also um, I'm sure, I hope we'll get on to debate some of the uh, proposals and ideas for raising the calibre of uh, teachers entering and I know there's a a white paper on ITT I think coming out uh, at some point. Um, The second area, raising the calibre of existing uh, teachers and principals, which again is the teaching leaders, future leaders, uh, but it's also thinking about those coaching and practice and I think one of the things that was very, very noticeable from our work was uh, that very much um, the best systems and the best individual schools and indeed uh, again to another point David you made, looking beyond the school into the classroom, those departments that are improving, those schools that are improving, those systems that are improving at the fastest rate have really embedded a culture of continuous learning within the school, within the classroom and for individual teachers. Finding time in the teaching day to um, actually learn from peers, to visit other schools, visit other teachers, I think is crucial and something that I uh, would like to see happening in this country. And lastly, that the third area that the report talks about is school-based decision making, and I think we we see that in terms of the sort of the self-evaluation. So one of the areas that was looked at in the report are some of the. Uh, charter schools uh, in the U.S., and I'm always inspired by the stories of uh, the uncommon schools where they have um, half a day every month where the school is off uh, timetable and they actually look at self-evaluation and critically assess the progress that they make, and the progress that they make, uh, to your point, Lorraine, at every single level and for every single uh, attainment point. And I think that's something we should think about, and also thinking about the sort of curriculum flexibility, as you said, that the content of the curriculum is important, but also the processes that go in there. So um, as we sort of go and launch into the debate, I think thinking about our position, the strengths that we have and how to build them, but also learning from the past and the interventions that haven't gone so well for England, and therefore, what next? So to end with uh, David, I think if we think of this as a starting point for learning, but just not just learning, a starting point for action, I look forward to hearing uh, some thoughts and comments on what sort of actions we should take.
1: So anyway, there, there we are. Um, uh, I'd love to hear from... Um, I look forward to getting copies of... Um, Various thoughts and reports, um, and uh, trying to create such a system that creates, as I say, puts value on the progress of every single child and means that we minimize the distortions in our system. And I'd like to thank McKinsey for stimulating so much debate. Thank you.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.